Hello, everyone. Today we are talking about underrated artists and overrated artists. If you want to nerd out about art, our prof has everything you need from tutorials to critiques to a community of fellow art nerds. Clara, do you want to get us started with your first underrated artist? Yeah, this is Hyman Bloom, and he was an artist who was born in Latvia, but eventually made his career in the U.S. I love his work. He hits all the points for being expressionistic and slightly gory and anatomical and beautiful drawings and just fleshy paintings. And it just bums me out that he was around during de Kooning and Pollock and stuff like that. And so few people know about him. His work, usually it has to do with Judaism, Eastern religion. So there's definitely a spiritual aspect to a lot of his work. You can see in some of the paintings, he has images that are based in religion. There's a lot of rabbis and Torahs throughout his subject matter. And it just makes me so sad that his work is so good and so few people know about him. Have you heard about him, Kat? Oh, I have actually never heard about him until the slideshow. I'm also sad that I don't know him. His work seems really poignant and very remarkable. I've never seen anything quite like it. The brush strokes are fleshy and decaying, but at once it is quite fascinating to look at. It's grotesque, but I want to keep watching it. And also he uses color in such an obvious, but also not obvious way. Obvious as in blue is blue, orange is orange. But then he mixes it, there's lights and darks, there's ways that they integrate with one another that makes it feel more poignant. Also, I'm sorry, Willem de Kooning, but a lot of you abstract expressionists could not draw like this and paint like this. I mean, don't these look like gourds that are made out of flesh? They're so visceral and I feel like I can hear them squishing around and they're very beefy and <clears throat> muscular. There's a lot of artists who I think are much better known for this type of thing, like Soutine did a lot of images of beef carcasses that are very expressionistic, but these are just on another level. And really, I cannot believe he is not better known. Like Anna says, love Hyman Bloom. I'm Jewish and I grew up religious. Even though I'm not anymore, I love to see Jewish artists. I mean, Kat, do you feel like you know, or, or do you have a theory maybe for why his work is not as well known? I think it just boils down to luck. There were a bunch of other big name artists that that were dominating the era as like Kooning, as you were saying earlier. And perhaps also there's an aspect of marketability in terms of popular art. And I can see why Bloom would not fall under the popular marketing spectrum. It is hard to market <clears throat> a semi-decaying muscular gourd, as you said earlier, it's hard. That's a very unique, very personal piece of artwork. And I think only a select few people might actually truly connect with it. It's not as easy to consume as other artworks that we know that are more popular. I just don't see a lot of artists who have 
this level of skill, but also expressionism. More often than not, <clears throat> I see people who have amazing skill, draftsmanship-wise, or I see people who are really good at brushwork and being expressionistic. He's both. And I just don't see a lot of people who can balance that type of work. And oh my gosh, the colors. We're doing a color premium track right now, and the colors are so weird. I mean, why would you think that the sickly green would work with these bright cadmium reds? I think he was very bold in terms of the work and, oh, texture. Why? It's not fair, Cat. Why is he not better appreciated? I, I just think it boils down to luck. I mean, a lot of people here in the comments are saying the same thing. Like Snapnira says, he happened at the wrong time. And someone else some here says, Ryan Jeff says, or ahead of his time. <laughs> it's all about luck in terms of being known, in terms of being famous. But I think it is good to know that these artworks is, exist, that we can see Bloom paintings today. And that is what matters the most. All right, Kat, explain to us your overrated artist pick. This is Peter Max. I actually learned about him for the first time in high school art class. One of my first assignments was to imitate a Peter Max drawing. And at the time I thought, oh, it's just colorful and hippies. And I still think that today <laughs> it's just colorful and hippies. It's just... <laughs> Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I think when I look at this artwork, it's not really my cup of tea in the first place, but I try to appreciate things that are outside of my taste. I think what could push it in another direction? What places could it explore? When I see Peter Max, I think that it needs to be pushed more. I just think it lacks so much. I see a little bit of Mobius, a little bit of the yellow submarine film that you mentioned later, Clara but I think it just needs to be more because there are basically only three elements that we see in Peter Max pictures. One, colorful hippie people that all kind of look the same. Two, flat backgrounds. Three, peace signs. <laughs> what do you think of this, Clara? I know I shouldn't like it because it's not my taste <laughs> at all. And it doesn't even fall under I don't like them, but I know I should appreciate them for their role in history. <clears throat> it doesn't even go there. But Kat, I was obsessed with the Yellow Submarine movie about the Beatles. I watched this movie a billion times and I loved it. And I love the visuals. And actually a lot of people think that Peter Max made the designs for this movie because they're just so similar. And I looked at it and thought, oh, it looks just like that movie. But because I like the movie, it makes me like Peter Max, which I think is so <laughs> shallow. But I think our associations, like nostalgia, sometimes impact how we see things and we can't help but be biased. That is fair to say too. And Clara, you are totally valid in liking Peter Max, even if it's not your taste. I mean, I think Peter Max was a great stepping stone to create pieces like the Yellow Submarine film, right? But I still believe that Peter Max is kind of a baseline. That's why I say he could be pushed more. And see, other people did push it more, such as in the Yellow Submarine film. 
Yeah, now that I'm looking at Peter Max's work more closely, I don't think it's remotely as weird as what happened in Yellow Submarine. That's why I like that movie so much. There was this one shot of a fish swimming with human arms, and you don't see anything that wacko in Peter Max's work. I want to give a shout out to Sana18 for the super chat. Hello to my Woo! favorite art ed platform. What nuggets and gems do you have for us today? Well, stick around and see. Thank you so much for the super chat. This is another point I want to make that Nancy's bringing up. Peter Max was brilliant at marketing himself because actually, I think for some people, he falls in line to kitsch. Because if you look up Peter Max, he had galleries and malls that only sold his work. He's actually very similar to Thomas Kincaid, who we talk about in the stream about kitsch. And I think that's also, we were just talking about marketing with Hyman Bloom. And actually there was a comment a lot earlier in the stream from Seven Angelic who mentioned I didn't know who some of these names were, but as soon as I saw the art, I was like, ah, that stuff. So Peter Max is well known, but a lot of people don't know his name. I mean, do you think maybe that's a detriment as an artist or, or maybe it was just so popular he had no control over it? I do believe as an artist, you make work, you put it out there, it has a life of its own. So in the case of Peter Max, he made something, put it out there, other people made their own versions of it. And it just has a life of its own. If people cared enough, they would go back to the source and realize, oh, Peter Max, that's his name. But as an artist, I think you have to realize you have no full control of your work once you put it out there. Joyce says, I grew up in the 70s. Peter Max was a very refreshing rebel who helped many break out of the box, could have gone farther. But the cool thing is that it inspired many to go farther. I'm so glad you shared that, Joyce, because... I think a lot of the work that we're looking at today, the time period that it emerged was hugely important. I mean, Kat, you and I can roll our eyes <laughs> at this work because we're not seeing that moment where it was fresh and so different than what was happening at the time. And W315 says, don't you think he's a forerunner to Takashi Murakami? Yes. I mean, he paved the way for a lot of artists to make this type of psychedelic work. I'm sure in the 60s, it had a different <laughs> feeling, but we have to think about where he went. All right, everybody, Alex wasn't feeling great today. So he is taking the day off to get better, but his underrated pick is Alec Gillis, who is a special effects artist. And he's underrated for a couple of reasons. Just inherently speaking, if you're an FX artist, you just do not get the visibility. You're hidden in this line of thousands of names at the end of the movie credits. And he worked on these quintessential 1980s special effects movies like Starship Troopers. He worked a lot with James Cameron on the Alien movies. And they pioneered some seriously amazing FX work. And there were no computers back then. Did you hear about this artist, Kat? Never. Unfortunately, this is not really my domain. I don't know many artists who work in this industry. And as you said, it is really hard to find the names of everything. 
involving effects because it's all a conglomerate, all a big body. You can't find individual artists, it's hard. And some of the special effects that they were doing during this time period, they had so little to work with. And actually my favorite tidbit about the alien movies is there's this one scene where they're doing an autopsy and the guts are oysters that they bought at the fish market. I mean, today they would have CG'd that, but it's disgusting in the movie. It's so good. And sometimes I'm bummed out by movies nowadays because the special effects are so over the top, but they don't look good. Right. I think what makes them look good is that they feel grounded in reality. You have to work with actual substance that you see, that you touch, that you live with, and then transform it. The thing about CGing everything is that it's all computer generated. It's sort of the same with drawing from life versus just drawing from a photograph. When you draw from life, there's an aspect of reality. There's an aspect of life that makes your drawings more unique. And a lot of the special effects teams, he worked with Stan Winston a lot, who did Total Recall, the old one with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And they had to make stuff up along the way. There's no rule book for how to do special effects. They would be presented a problem. Hey, we need to make a face hugger, <laughs> drip slime. <laughs> how do we make those alien eggs open up on their own? and make them slimy and icky. How do you do all those things? And I think that was a time period where puppets were huge and you had to know how to do the mechanics of that. And I'm just blown away by the innovation, the range of materials, the craftsmanship. I mean, it just makes me sad that they get so little credit and their stuff is so impactful on so many people. I think you mentioned a key word here, which is did you mention multimedia or did I just put that into your... You, <laughs> you put that in. Now I sound so smart. <laughs> you said a word that made me think of multimedia, but essentially these FX artists are multimedia artists, which means they're a jack of all trades. They are open to all the possibilities of all sorts of mediums. And that's what makes these effects so attractive versus something that's CG, where the only media you have is CG. I mean, not to shame CG. <laughs> CG is also great in its own way, but I wish to see a balance of both CG and real FX in films nowadays. Well, I think CG now it's so advanced that it's too easy to say, oh, well, just CG it. They don't have to get innovative about how it's made. I saw the Blade Runner building. It was at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York City. And in the film, it looks just tremendous. The model looks so crappy. <laughs> and so you have to think, hey, they did some major stuff with lighting and color to get that effect, like the transformation of this. I mean, look at this sculpture. It doesn't look that great, right? But how come in the movie it's disgusting? I mean, I don't get disgusted by a lot of things that fast, but... <laughs> have you seen these movies? You must have seen them, right? <laughs> I've seen clips, yes. And I've seen some I've seen some horror films like the Fly Man. What was it called? Fly Man. <laughs> Both the old and the new version. And sometimes also you have to work with a huge well, not sometimes, all the time. You have to work with a huge team of people 
And then Giger was the person whose designs they implemented. And so in some ways, you're also doing an interpretation of someone else's work into someone else's movie. <laughs> it's really, <laughs> really hard. Mm. Okay. My overrated artist is Sally Mann. Sally Mann is a photographer and she is most well known for a project called Immediate Family. And you're looking at them here. They're basically these black and white images that she has shot of her children growing up. And I don't know where they live, but it was in a very rural setting. And her work was really controversial. People were really angry about this project. A lot of people thought she was objectifying children, exploiting her own family. And I confess, Kat, I watched an Art 21 PBS video with Sally Mann. Oh, it was so cringy. I was like, really? Well, tell me, tell us what you found cringy about the interview. She was just so spaced out. The way she talked about her work was, I take photos and I'm trying to look at the light. And I haven't watched it for a long time, okay? I could be just making stuff up, but just the way she spoke, she just didn't seem like a very savvy or introspective person. It was like, I take pictures of my family. You should all care. I'm like, I don't care. This is your family. I mean, take, I take family photos. I could do that and make them black and white. That's not that impressive. I feel like I don't even need to listen to the Sally Mann interview. I can just listen to your interpretation of Sally Mann and I'll get the full so image. <laughs> cringy. Oh my God. It just, and the thing is, she is so big in the art world. There are a lot of people who just worship her and I don't get what the whole fuss is. There is certainly a shock value to her photographs. I will say that. I think that people just thrive off of shock. Uh, I mean, Marina Abramovich, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, was once on an interview. I don't even remember where. I was told this by a friend, but she said, when you're at a lovely dinner, you can get served the most delicious food, listen to the most beautiful music, and then somebody will just squirt some lemon juice into your eye by accident. And at the end of the evening, all you're going to remember is just lemon juice in your eye, even though you had such a fantastic evening overall just that one little shock value will stick with you. And I think Sally Mann's photograph certainly has that shock value, whether people appreciate it, whether people love that sort of thing is up to other people. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It's not mine for one. Ginger Saul says, Clara, do you think you don't like her as a person and that's why you don't like her work? That's a good point because there's a lot of, stuff going on right now about do we separate the art from the artists there's a lot of artists who wow are finally being called out for really bad behavior chuck close would be an example of that but the thing is i knew her work before i saw the interview and so i feel like for me i was looking at the work more objectively and then as nancy says seemed shallow she seemed out of it i agree Maybe I'm just doing that because I'm an educator and I like artists who speak well mm. and articulately. And for me, that's a big part of the experience. I've seen artist lectures where I did not like the work, but then created a respect for them later on because I loved hearing their insights. But even 
compositionally, they're not that great. It's like, great, you use the natural sunlight that was in your backyard. How hard was that? I mean, she's not really giving us anything new. I mean, some people are like, oh, the, the intimacy of what she shows. And I just, I can't get into it. I feel like a lot of photographers show intimate scenes. It's a valid point to bring up with Sally Mann's photos when critiquing them, but I think that people should dig a little deeper for their critiques. I mean, I, for one, cannot separate art from artists. I do look at both at the same time, or at least I try to. And when I see artworks, I usually see a reflection of the artist themselves. It came from them. There is an element of them in the artwork. When I look at Sally Mann's photographs, I don't feel like they give me anything that inspires me or makes me want to create artwork of my own or makes me want to research anything else. I just see it as a reflection of what she finds interesting and I don't find it interesting myself. Other people could find it interesting. That's why we have these streams, underrated, overrated. These are all opinions. Everybody has their own opinion. Dusty says, I don't know why I don't like looking at these subjects. They feel a little bit voyeuristic. I think that could be one of the reasons that we're seeing something we shouldn't be seeing. And there's a lot of images of Sally Mann's. I couldn't show them on the stream because we would get demonetized by YouTube. But she has a lot of images of her young kids nude in the backyard and around their house. And that can make you very uncomfortable. And I know there is the argument that, oh, it's good for art to make you uncomfortable and to challenge you, but I, I just can't get into it. Yeah, C. Cantrell, it was the nudes of her kids because people felt that she was putting them as objects of desire. And there, there's just a lot of layers there that are really difficult. Nancy says... Man's work seems very French, allowing children to be an adult world provocative and can be triggering. Well, you lived in France for a while, Kat. Do you think that's maybe part of it? I don't think there is a French influence in Sally Man's works. I know that, I mean, in France, things that would be rated R in the US would be rated like PG-13 in France. That's fact. I think Fifty Shades of Grey came out kind of semi-recently when I was in France, and people rated it as not mature, it was something like PG-13, <laughs> which I found really funny at the time. But that aside, Sally Mann's works, I, there is, I have to stick to my morals here. It's wrong to post pictures of your new children. It's wrong. They don't have control over who gets to see those photos. Why are you even putting it out there? I find that baffling. If I were a parent, I probably wouldn't, I would not do that. Her kids are young in these pictures. I mean, a lot of them, she's taking a photo of a three-year-old who's nude in a domestic setting. Like Maddie says, if I was one of those kids, I'd feel a bit icky looking back on these photos when I'm older. It feels invasive. And D. Key says, I wonder how the children felt about being the subjects of the photos and being shown to a wide audience. When you're three years old, you don't get to make your own decisions. And that's another thing that I think is hard for people to reconcile with. All right, Lisa Frank is your underrated artist cat. She's so popular though. I don't understand why you think she's underrated. 
I think she's underrated in the art world. I think she is overrated in the business world, perhaps. But I mean, everybody knows who Lisa Frank is. I think Lisa Frank has truly be, been a genius in developing her artwork and then marketing the heck out of it to the point where anything that you see is overly colorful, overly maximalist, overly detailed, you'd say that is Lisa Frank. And I think that Lisa Frank had a goal and she definitely achieved that goal. And also, why are we tearing down Lisa Frank's works? I also think that because it is a subject matter marketed towards young female people, that people give it a bad rap. They're like, oh, that's Lisa Frank. That's not for me. That's for little girls. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I think that a museum filled with Lisa Frank artwork would be so cool. I mean, I would probably get a headache at the end of it. <laughs> But man, would that be an experience, right? <laughs> Clara, what are your thoughts on Lisa Frank? Do you like Lisa Frank? Do you hate her? This is somewhat similar to Peter Max in that I have such nostalgia for Lisa Frank. Who had a Lisa Frank trapper keeper? <laughs> I mean, this is part of my childhood. And it's very hard for me to evaluate her separate from that experience. And you know what's weird, Kat? This is a set of stickers from the 80s. This is old school Lisa Frank. Who here is a child of the 80s and remember this? You know, it's nuts. That sticker in the lower right of the ballet slippers, I had that sticker. And I had a sticker <laughs> collection and it was in a photo album. And I thought at the time, the Lisa Frank photos and stickers were the most beautiful images that ballet picture i i just i memorized every millimeter of that image i haven't looked at that sticker in i don't know 40 years and i remember every bit of it and so it's hard for me to not like it because it's just pure nostalgia that's fair i want to bring up this comment from neil that says formally speaking the colors are a mess but i can tell that there's passion behind the work I mean, I agree, Neil. I think the colors are a mess, but that's what draws me into it. Because in Peter Max's case, whenever I looked at his works, I thought there could be more. When I look at Lisa Frank's pieces, I think it's done. <laughs> There's so much. You need to bring it back now. And I think I would actually prefer that because, Clara, as a teacher, when you're teaching uh, students, it's really, really hard for people to give more it's actually yeah, it easier is. when they give the most and then you tell mm -hmm. them to bring it back a little bit lisa frank has done the most lisa frank can probably bring it back now <laughs> <laughs> well i'm known in the classroom for saying i want more all the time and i think you're right what she does that peter max did not do she's so over the top you've got to respect that that is not easy to put yourself out there. And she went over the top with marketing where you almost can't be mad at her anymore because it's so out of control that I kind of respect that big time. Right. Speaking of out of control, it's just super brave. It's saying, this is everything. Do you like it or not? I really don't care. I'm getting bank. <laughs> <laughs> Alexandra says, I'm an 80s kid. Lisa Frank stickers were the epitome of the sticker collection. And 
Dusty says it's just so cute. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've been watching some really trashy YouTube compilations of Matthew Good and Downton Abbey. And it makes me so happy. And I'm like, it's so trashy. But I just love it. And what's wrong with artwork that just is so cute? And she's a big part of people's lives. I think that there's a lot of stuff we grew up with. And you can't just say, oh, because formally speaking, the colors are not well balanced and she doesn't understand the mere concept of saturated colors. I don't feel like I can hold that against her because she's such a big part of my childhood. That is a valid argument. There is something to be celebrated in how these artworks have inspired generations and multiple generations of young children from you, Clara, to me. I also had Lisa Frank paraphernalia when I was little. I had a leopard folder that I took, I remember, to my first grade classroom every day. And there's something so joyous about that, that we can all share in this experience that Lisa Frank has given us. Just maximalist, oversaturated colors, goodness. <laughs> Joyce says, I wonder how many children were inspired by her. Images are very powerful. When you see them as a child, you absorb those images in a way that I can't anymore. And there has to be something to be said about that. You know what else is interesting about Lisa Frank is that when I looked her up, one of the questions that pops up from Google is, is Lisa Frank a real person? And that's so strange to me because people don't do that with Hyman Bloom. <laughs> Is Hyman Bloom a real person? Why do you think that people ask that question about her? I think there's something so attractive about the work that people want to know the artist. Do they say, is this a conglomeration? Or is there a real artist's hand and heart behind these images? Seven Angelic says, I kind of think she must have known what she was doing and been like, yeah, this is me. Oh, she's owning it. She's like, this is who I am. You don't like it too bad. I'm going to have this billion dollar empire. And there's a lot of talk about, oh, this artist sold out because, oh my God, they sold money. <laughs> they made money from their artwork. They're such a terrible artist. And I, I just love that she owned her situation and does not seem apologetic about it, which I think is wonderful. All right. Alex's overrated pick is Robert McGinnis, who was an illustrator, and he's probably best known for this Breakfast at Tiffany's poster. I tend to think he's very dated looking because his work was a very specific time period. And for me, it's hard to really understand the context with which he emerged. But come on, skinny women who are half dressed and in provocative, bleh, not my cup of tea, no matter what time period you are. Uh, that's what the public wanted at the time. And that's what Robert McGinnis gave them. <laughs> well, Kat, I, I hear a lot of things about, well, he was doing an illustration gig. It's not his fault that the work looked like this. Maybe that's what the art director wanted. That's fair to say. I do think that you need to pay the bills, obviously. But there is something one of my professors once told me that really stuck with me. He said whenever he accepted an illustration gig, he always thought about 
how it would pay, obviously, how it would do in the public, but also how it fulfilled him personally. And it was really important for him that he had an overwhelming reason for one point, or he had a balance of all three. And I think that artwork that fulfills you personally should persist as an artist. You have to make artwork for yourself as you go throughout your career and your life. But if this is all that Robert McGuinness is doing, uh, fine with me. He can do whatever he wants. It's just probably not what I would like to see. I don't, I do not feel like it is fulfilling. Slotnir says Robert McGuinness does not age well. I agree. Lacking more to it than what you see. Yeah, we haven't even gotten to the visual. <laughs> like I just talked about the skinny women in provocative positions. I mean, dude, learn how to paint a freaking background. What is this? <laughs> like, like all these stupid, like, really? That's gonna, and he does it over and over again. It, it is not a one time, oh, I ran out of time on the deadline. It's like, yep, that's my thing. Just look at the women. Classic, <laughs> the male gaze. <laughs> Another thing is that I don't know that we can blame someone's profession on dictating the work that they make. Because John Singer Sargent had to paint so many society portraits. I cannot imagine those were fun to do. I'm sure they paid very well. But I was a portrait artist for like two years and I felt like I was in the seventh circle of hell in Dante's Inferno. It was just the worst gig. But the thing is, if you look at Sargent's full span of artwork, he did these beautiful plein air watercolor paintings in Venice and all these other places. And a lot of that work was not very marketable or society picture. And it was clear when you look at Sargent's work that he really did prioritize making work for himself. And I'm going to assume that McGinnis did fairly well. I mean, if you made a movie poster, you're probably doing okay, I would guess, especially one this famous. Right. I think it goes, boils down to the point of people do want to know the artist essentially through the artwork in some way. I don't know if I know Robert McGinnis through all of these paintings of beautiful women, or maybe I do know him and I don't like him. <laughs> but what really attracted me to the previous artists that I said I liked was that I could feel the artist somehow through the artworks. And I feel like I would like them as a person. C. Cantrell says, nah, sex sells and his male fantasy together. There's a reason people make images like this. <laughs> I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of male artists on Instagram who make stuff that's way more sexual and provocative than what you're seeing in McGinnis's work. And sometimes I look at those Instagram accounts, I'm like, aren't you embarrassed that you're a male artist and you're painting half-naked women that are really young and thin? is verging on softcore pornography in a lot of cases. Maybe they just don't care. I have no idea. It's hard to figure out why that artist did what they did. But half the time I look at this stuff, I'm like, dude, you're just horny, okay? Like, why do you have to <laughs> tell us that? Like, I, I don't need to hear this. <laughs> I have to pull up this comment because it's funny. Dusty says, great to know, man paints pretty white woman is a trope standing the test of time. <laughs> yes, 
it will always be there for you no matter what time period you're looking at you can always count on it emil klosterman says i do a lot of portrait commissions if i didn't make art for myself i would go crazy i agree with that because i do a lot of stuff that's not that fun to do so i can do the fun stuff and kat you and i have talked about how you need to have that little space in your head just for you, not for money, mm -hmm. not for a career, not because it's going to help you land a gig. Have you found that important? Oh, absolutely. Because I'm a person. I'm not just an artist. Being an artist is an important part about being me, but it's just one facet of me. I need to go out and live life. I need to go out and have fun. And sometimes that means taking a break from art. Joyce says, it seems to be in alignment with the 60s furniture styles too, simplified. I mean, I loved Mad Men, <laughs> John Hamm. <laughs> His character was a total jerk, but that was a really cool time period. All the design that was happening and the graphics and ads, it was really cool. And I'm like, Robert McGinnis, you're not giving us the best of the 60s. <laughs> All right, everybody, we have an art prof share. Today, we are talking about the Drawing Basics track. Art prof share is where one of you uses one of our pieces of content. The tracks are a sequence of video lessons and prompts that you can do at your own pace. And we do have a Discord channel that is just for people doing the track, and it's so fun to see what people come up with. And so let's look at what Anna P did for the drawing track. Anna says that I'm a hobby artist, started drawing two years ago, and that she wanted to have an experience, some external validation to convince myself that the art learning experience is real. She wanted a group of people with which to commiserate and some sort of concrete pathway to make it easier to know what to do today. And Anna says, the track challenged me to try processes that I wouldn't have otherwise loved that the track could be completed at my own pace and the videos were easy to access. The drawing track is a lot of work. <laughs> One of the parts of the track is an ongoing assignment where we say you have to draw a little bit every day. I'm such a hypocrite. I did a video yesterday that said don't draw every day. <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> what to tell you, but it is nice, I think, for a short time period. If you're trying to get started, it can be helpful. I just don't think you need to do it all the time to the point that it stresses you out. So we're mm -hmm. looking at these gesture drawings. How do you think Anna did with the ongoing assignment, Kat? I think Anna did fantastic. I think Anna drew more kinds of animals than I have my entire life. To be honest, I'm looking through these drawings, I'm like, wow, I see dogs, I see birds, I see cats, I see farm animals. <laughs> and in addition, I see much more than just animals. I see human figures. And previously, I also saw elements of architecture and landscape. So Anna, you're really branching out and touching all subject matters possible. And also trying out different mediums. I see charcoal, pencil, ink, and a little bit of oil pastel, it seemed like before. And I think that's wonderful. These drawing tracks are sort of a springboard for you to just have fun and experiment. It's not something where you come out of it and you have totally finished polished pieces. I mean, it's great if you do do that too, but these tracks aim for you to learn, for you to grow. 
And so Anna has taken full advantage of it, as it seems. And as Clara said, the drawing tracks are a ton of work. So anytime anybody finishes a track, kudos to you. I mean, oh my gosh, that's so much. And having the self-discipline to stay on top of it. And it's so great because I love that Anna put in these wet charcoal exercises where mm -hmm. the prompt is to make as many vertical lines as possible in different ways. And it's so fun to see how this experience then leads to this, doing a wet charcoal landscape. And so, Anna, I think you did a great job really hitting such a broad range of different skills. And it's just wonderful to see this. So take a look at our tracks there on artprof.org. We have several now. I just added a brainstorming track and color and portrait are also recent additions. And we also added, this is new, these student galleries. So if you go to artprof.org, you can actually go to a page where we showcase everybody who finished a drawing track. And you can look at their slideshow, you can watch their video feature, we do an Instagram post, and also you can visit their social media account. So everybody, think about it, because like D Key says definitely want to do the drawing track, and Ginger Cell says so many people have been doing it. It's so fun to get in there, and also in the Discord. Why is it so nice to do the track, but also to hang out in the Discord channel that's for the tracks? you don't ever want to feel alone when exploring something new, right? You always want a guiding force or you want comrades in your journey. <laughs> and so being in the Discord really provides that community, as Anna said earlier, to commiserate with other people and building a community. That's part of being an artist. Being an artist is, about, is to form links with other people, to form links with things outside of art as well and put it back into your art, right? <laughs> And also we have people who have finished the track, who are doing new tracks, who are helping the people with the drawing track. And I just love that. People will come and say, oh yeah, I remember that prompt. This was really hard, but actually it ended up being really useful in this way. That camaraderie is very important. There are many it's ways- It's a you can wonderful support... cycle of giving. Yes, exactly. There are many ways you can support ArtProf. You can become a monthly Patreon supporter, lots of exclusive rewards. You can purchase a social media critique. And we hope you will join Kat and I in the Discord after the stream. We are going to be in the post live streams stage channel. And you can talk to us on voice. Really fun to be able to have that one-on-one -on -one interaction. So we hope you will join us there. And a big thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Wow, we've got some new people in here. Carrie Hyde, Cole Jones, Lacey Jane Wolf. Thank you for your support. And wow, finally, we're going up. It's like we kept dipping down for a while. We've gone up, but you can see we still have a ways to go to hit our $6,000 goal. So we would love it if you would support us so we can keep making our content free and accessible. ArcProf has a podcast. It's available on Spotify and also on iTunes. And subscribe to our channel if you want to get more art tutorials, critiques, business tips, and more. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye.